0: Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. Okay, everyone, I am so glad you're with me today for this podcast interview. I always love when somebody connects me to another person, because as I've told you in past podcasts, everybody has a story and most of us have many, 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 many stories from our life and many chapters. And gratefully, my sister-in-law, Julie, she connected me with Lynette McDonald, who, um, wow, she has a life. And talk about seeking light. Lynette is a mother. She's a therapist. She has served a mission with her husband in the Philippines um, as a mental health advisor. She um, has children that she has raised that went through struggling times as little children and she's brought them up. She has gone through cancer uh, multiple times and she's incredible. And today she is Living in Arizona happily <laughs> with her husband. And she's running um uh she's a has a company called True Help Therapy. And I just would love for all of you to hear about Lynette and see how in life we go through things, but everything is for our good, and it also brings us closer to God and He knows what our life path is. And so, Lynette, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Beth.
0: Thank you. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. Okay, Lynette, we have to start in your childhood. So let's start when you were a little girl. Can you share with everybody a little bit about your life as a child? Okay. All right. Well, gosh, it's
1: hard to know where to start, isn't it? A little bit about my life when I was a child. Okay. So when I was really little, two years old, my family moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to San Diego, California. My father's family, the grandparents, our family, aunt and uncle and their families all moved together to San Diego, lived not too far from each other. Yeah, and uh, it was a thing back in the 50s to move to California, the land of opportunity, you know? And my parents bought their first home. And I used to, you know, a very imaginative child. I had uh, lots of imaginary playmates and things like that. I was an only child until I was eight. And then my little sister came on board. Before that though, my father, who was a kind of a major presence in my life. And he, uh, he had grown up speaking Spanish part of the time. And so he made friends with the Ecuadorian consulate, who lived three houses from us. Every day he he would go after work, he would go up to, to the street and put his arms out and go Eduardo! and my <laughs> and it was my he the consul would answer would answer Howard, and they would give each other a big hug, you know. And their little children and I would play together, even though they spoke Spanish and I spoke English, but we didn't care. We had fun every day, and it was great and i was so fascinated with everything about them including their catholic style of saying their prayers and crossing themselves and that they had little pierced earrings and oh i wanted them so badly my mother said no but she did get me some little earrings i don't even know if they make them anymore but you screw them on and then yep. you kind of pinch yep. your ear to stay yes. and to me they look like diamonds like the prettiest thing that ever lit in you know, everywhere and i treasured them oddly I have one of them still after all these years it was great but my mom really cared about me I know
0: okay so your mother she has a baby when you are eight years old and it's right it's a little girl yes and what and what was that like for you having a baby sister after all those years
1: I was in heaven it was I was so happy I I remember coming home from school and uh, my mom saying, shh, don't wake up the baby. And I wanted to go in her room and I wanted to see her. So I begged my mom. She said, okay, but be really, really quiet. So I was really, really quiet. And I reached into the bars of the crib and I touched her. And I touched her and I touched her probably too much. And she woke up. My first, my mom was like irritated. And then she realized I just loved her and just wanted to see her and hold her. And so she wasn't mad at me. It was, sweet. <laughs> it was so sweet. Yeah, I had a wonderful mom.
0: It's wonderful. And you talked about how she worked. Did you say uh-huh. for, the y- for the YMCA? Um, well, actually, it was the YWCA,
1: the Young Women's Christian Association. Ooh. And it, yeah, it, it's not as well known, but it was an organization. It is an organization for women. And we lived in the suburbs. My mom didn't learn to drive at that point. So um, she would take me along on the city bus and we would go all the way into downtown San Diego, which was like a completely different world. And I got to come along with her. She didn't actually get paid. It wasn't a job, but she went there as a volunteer to help immigrant women who were coming into San Diego from all over the world and to help them arrange housing and clothes and all the rest, I wasn't really very aware of it, but that's what she did down there. And I was just completely fascinated with this huge building. And I remember walking through it and getting lost. And and anyway, I was very impressed with the work that she did. They had these um, world festivals every December. And my mother was, she was, it's really kind of interesting. Uh, She was a a young woman in the 40s during World War II. When the men went off to war, she went off to school. Her family really wanted her to get an education. And she went to school um, in a couple of schools, including the Barbizon School. She was one of those women who lived there. She was a model, she studied dressmaking. She was fabulous at all of those those, uh, textile arts. And at the YWCA, she made these little Christmas trees out of felt, very intricate and covered with sequins and seed beads, and women would wear them like a corsage. And she she made as many as she could of these. They all sold immediately. She made me one, I remember. And uh, all the proceeds, the immigrant women would also make their handicrafts and foods from all over the world. So I got to love I still do a lot of foods from all over the world and cooking and so forth. I still remember that World Festival every December and how that was a big part of our lives. And riding the bus downtown with my mother felt so good. But yes, I don't know if we did it after my sister was born, but um, yeah, she was great.
0: So your mom sounds like she was quite the example of a Christ like woman. To me, she really was. I
1: wanted to be like her and she wanted me to go to school. From the time I was really little, I had learned, I had learned to read before I started school and she took me to get some kind of testing, probably to uh, see if I could start school earlier or if we're talented and gifted, I don't know. But after the testing, all she told me was, you will go to college one day, you will. And, uh, and I believed her and I planned
0: my life around that and uh, wanted to do that very much. So when you found out, how did you find out that your mother had cancer?
1: Oh, boy! Um, I can tell that story. I was in eighth grade. It was like spring of eighth, my eighth grade year, and my mom was going to go in for some surgery that was supposed to be minor, like she was having an epigastric hernia repair, a little hernia near her ribcage. She said for about two weeks or so she would be, you know, recuperating. And she taught me just what to do to, as she put it, keep your father happy. So uh, how to cook some meals, how to take care of the house, how to do all the things she normally would do for my dad and to keep the household going. And I wanted to show her how grown up I was and I could definitely do all these things. And I was really kind of excited to show her, you know? And so as she went into the hospital, on that day I was home from school I don't remember why maybe it was a Saturday and my my girlfriend uh Lee who lived up the street was was with me and we were fixing lunch for my father when if he was going to come home from the hospital you know very kind of feeling very good about all that he came into the he opened the front door and he was just bawling crying and and completely like hysterical and my first thought was she died she's dead and I, that's what I said did she die and he said no but she has cancer all through her and scared me half to death and then he noticed my friend was there and he was embarrassed because he was crying And he hollered at her and he told her to go and uh, so that was how I found out not the way you should tell someone um but that is how I found out and uh she came home, but she never really was able to get up off of the couch. she She declined um, and she and couldn't really recover from that first surgery. And um, it was really hard. It's hard to see her like that, but i I, I kind of took over that role permanently that she thought I was going to do for two weeks.
0: And so then you became kind of the caretaker for your home, for your for your little sister and your dad. yep. Wow, what a responsibility! So now and
1: then he would. Now and then he would get a housekeeper for us, and they were usually Mexican women, and sometimes they didn't speak English. And one night, one of them had uh, something go wrong in the middle of the night, and she came to me. I think my father was out, and um, she came to me, and she said, "This was after my mother had died, actually." She, she taught, What I gathered from the things she said in half Spanish, half English, was that she was having a miscarriage in the middle of the night, and, and my father wasn't there, and I helped her to, to go to, I couldn't drive, but I called someone and helped her to go to the hospital. Oh, but wow. sometimes we had some housekeepers, and that one we had the longest, but that ended at that, at that point.
0: And when did your, when did your mother, so you found out in eighth grade, when mm-hmm, did she pass like, away from how April, how long?
1: November of my ninth grade year. So about six months later, six months later, mm-hmm.
0: what responsibility did you feel for your little sister?
1: Oh, I felt a lot of responsibility for her and she came to me for support. And, and um, but it was hard because I had to go to school. Like that. she had, she was just in kindergarten. She was five and her, she was in afternoon kindergarten. And so my dad went to work and I had to go to school and she was there. So what we ended up having her do was walk down to the neighbor's house at a certain time and then go to school with the kids at the neighbor's house. I don't know why we didn't have her go there for like at the, in the morning, but she was home alone for a while, and then she would walk down there. She it was up to her to know where on the clock was the right time, and then walk down to her friend's house and, and go to school. Of course, if I had to do it over again, I would definitely do it differently. But that's what we did
0: at the time. Right. Yeah. So you, 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 your dad. You moved right to. Uh, did you move to a new high school? Yeah.
1: After after um, my sophomore year uh, in part of part of my sophomore year um, my dad decided to move us Uh, so we moved away from the house we had lived in with my mother and it really was a loss because it was more loss because we lost lost the home that I'd lived in since I was little and my friends and my school and my sister lost her school and we moved to this fancy suburb where we didn't know anybody, started a new school and so forth. Um, yeah, it was, and your dad remarried
0: too, right? He did. He did. And that was another
1: thing that uh, I wouldn't recommend. He, he, uh, w- he was dating various women, and he had dated this one woman. And the next thing I knew, I, it's kind of funny how it happened. My friend uh, and I were singing along with the stereo and we had turned up we were home alone we turned it up loud and we were singing we were having this great time um singing the age of aquarius that's what we were singing (laughs) and and my dad walked in through the door from the garage with this woman and said that they just got married in tijuana and i was just (laughs) like shocked (laughs) and she had a bad impression of me because i was singing this song that she thought was terribly worldly Oh, well, (laughs) she didn't take, she'd been married uh, like five times before and had lots of stepchildren. And so she wasn't very interested in parenting. And um, she didn't take much interest in me. And she especially didn't take much interest in my little sister, which was too bad because my sister would have really appreciated that. So I did what I could. But like I said, it's hard when you're just a kid yourself.
0: (laughs) So, who were some pivotal people, Lynette, in your life? As a child, as a teenager, as a teenager.
1: Well, you know, it's funny, but some people who really didn't play a major role in my life still were very, very supportive to me. And I, I try to remember this when it comes to ministering now as an adult, because you can really make a difference in the life of a young person, even if you don't play a huge role in their lives, like my best friend's mother. I would walk home from school and with my friend and stop and say hi to her mother, and she would give me hugs. She was a good lady, and she made me feel a little grounded. This was before we moved. Um, but then, also before we moved, there was a young mom who lived next door and and she knew how to sew. And my mother had been teaching me how to sew, you know that was her thing and but she didn't get to finish and so I had a dress that I had started to make. I can still see it in my mind's eye. And I couldn't, I tried to finish it on my own because I wanted to wear it and I didn't know how to finish it and I messed up putting the zipper in and I took it over to her and even though she was a busy mom with little kids, she took the time to help me and finish learning how to sew. And that was so, not only it was about sewing, but it was about nurturing me. And then, a really cool thing um my father's friend my father sold advertising time for cbs in san diego and so he made friends with these people who were took them out on the golf course and bought you know all that stuff wind and dined them and one of them was a really nice man his uh, hispanic man and his family and they had moved to dallas texas and he, they called my father on the phone after they heard that my mother had died and they said howard What are you doing this christmas and he said nothing and he said no he says you're flying here i've got your tickets and you and your girls are coming to dallas and when we got there he treated us so well he had little he had a daughter about the same age as my sister and he got them or their mom got them matching dresses and little purses and little mary jane shoes and oh my sister was so happy it was the first time i would seen her really really happy in a long time, they didn't have any kids my age, but they did have a young woman who was about 18 as their live-in housekeeper and nanny, and so she became my buddy on that visit, and I remember riding on a bus to downtown Dallas to buy, and they gave me a little bit of money and said, here, buy yourself something for Christmas, and it was so much fun to do that and shop, and while we were there riding the bus home with, with this young woman that, with the housekeeper, um, it snowed, and 100%, you know, sunny Southern California, I didn't hardly ever see snow. So there was snow, and it was so beautiful. And she used to like Johnny Rivers, you know, the poor side of town, you know that. She would play those 45s in her room, and we would laugh and sing, and it was so nice. So not everybody can do that, but that really helped us get through that Christmas, which was only just a few, few weeks after my mom had passed away.
0: Is there anybody else that you can think of that was really pivotal in your life? Oh yeah, a little bit later.
1: um, My school guidance counselor in my new school, um, I had started there and I was taking all these college prep classes and working really hard to get good grades for college my junior year. I brought home a really good report card at the end of the first semester and I showed it to my father. And I told him how I was trying to get good grades so I could get into college. And offhandedly, my father said, I'm not paying for you to go to college. If you want to go to college, you're on your own. You're going to pay for it yourself. I was shocked. And it seemed impossible to pay for it myself. I didn't have money. So I just, my dream of college was like someone just popped my balloon. And I asked myself, why am I even trying so hard taking all these college classes and I'm not even going to college? So at the beginning of the new term, when I went back to school, dropped out of the college prep classes and I transferred into a few regular education classes that I actually needed to graduate. And I was done with school at 11 o'clock every day. And that was when this person made a difference. He was a guidance counselor and the papers showing me dropping out of my college prep classes came across his desk. And he wondered, he'd never met me before. I was a new student at the school, he didn't know me. But he wondered why I dropped out of all my classes and my grades were really good. So he called me into his office and I told him what my father had said about, you know, if you're going to go to college, you're going to pay for yourself. And I can't do that. I can't pay for college. And the counselor said, I promise you, if you want to go to college, there will be a way. And he explained several different ways we could do it. And then I had hope for my future again. And I, with his help, I transferred back into my college prep classes and only had a week or two of, Makeup work to do. So it made a huge difference. Um, huge difference in your life. Huge difference. And funny thing, that that uh, counselor's name was McDonald. He was Mr. McDonald. <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, which you know, of course, my and that's last your name, last name. Yeah. since 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 um, you know, since I got married, that's my last name.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, so you you learned about the gospel and at 16 you get baptized right it was it was not necessarily a smooth path for you right because it was you reading alma chapter 34 that really touched you right right
1: well my stepmother was a less active member of the church and she was not a good example you know but i decided that the church. I was gonna separate those two in my mind, that the church could be true or not, nevertheless, never no matter, never mind how she lived, you know, it had nothing to do with it. So the, and my father had already decided, okay, I, you know, I'll join this church to please her, try to make things smoother with her, because they weren't getting along. So the, at that time, it was um, the state commissionaries, older men, they came to my house, to teach my father but he wasn't actually that interested in learning he just kind of went along with it yeah 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 and because he wasn't sincere but I was really sincere I had been a person who especially when my mother was sick I had a lot of questions for God why is this happening why do bad things like cancer happen to good people like my mother? and that it still touches me to think about that and um and my mother's and I, so i started visiting all of these churches that were within walking distance of my house and the people were nice that they were nice and some things i really liked about some of their churches but they couldn't answer those questions about what is the purpose of life and things that i had and and so i didn't stick with any of them in fact in the presbyterian church in the eighth grade you take a confirmation class and you get confirmed and i completed that class very faithfully and at the last day when i was supposed to go and get confirmed i didn't go i and i remember they called me on the phone and said did you forget and, no i didn't forget i've decided not to be confirmed because i'm just not sure if this is the right church so i was sincerely looking and um but there was no <laughs> church of jesus christ of latter-day saints clo- close to where i live ironically now there is a church and it's right next to the high school I used to go to and there's seminary and everything, but back in the day, there wasn't. So um, anyway, when the stake missionaries came to my house, well, backtrack, right after my mother died in our old house, the the missionaries came to our house and they showed Man's Search for Happiness. You remember that film strip? Yeah. They they showed that on, on our wall. And when the man and the wife meet, as you know, at the end when they die and these two people meet, and my father just started crying and got all embarrassed again and got mad and sent the missionaries away, don't never come back. But I didn't feel that way at all. I was interested. And they left a little articles of faith card, which puzzled me some of it and fascinated me. But I just kept reading it over and over again, thinking about what that was. And but there was no LDS church around where I lived, ironically, there was an LDS family that lived right across the street from me. And I knew their daughter, she was two two years younger than me and she had older brothers and I used to go play ping pong and basketball and have one of them would hold me by one hand and one leg and spin me around. (laughs) One time I went to family home evening at their house but they never really told me what church they went to or what they believed or invited me to church or anything. And I I sometimes wonder what would have happened. But at any rate, I was taught and when I, by those, those stake missionaries and they gave me a Book of Mormon and I read it and I sincerely prayed. And it's just like they say, you know, you feel the spirit and you know this is true. The book is true and the gospel is true. So I decided I'd be baptized. And um, my father was too. And the funny thing was, you know, one thing I learned about that is when someone is getting baptized, please tell them to bring a towel. Because' <laughs> nobody told me, and so after after I got you know I had to use the paper towels
0: <laughs> to dry, dry off. off, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so always tell them bring it bring a towel, <laughs> yeah, so, so you get babble, baptized-, mm-hmm. and, and we had we had moved to the new house in the new area, and my father and stepmother hardly ever went to church, and I didn't have a ride, and it was far. And so I didn't get to go to church or mutual for about a year. I kept on reading the scriptures and I had a friend, a boy I kind of liked at the time. And he was a Dutch Reformed. He went to the Dutch Reformed Church. And I tried to teach him about the gospel and I didn't know enough about it myself. But um, I really, I really was struggling. And I prayed, prayed that to God to say, I don't think I can make it on my own it was a very unhappy time in my life. My my dad and stepmom fought all the time. My little sister really needed me and I felt torn. And It was just a really unhappy time. And so I told God, I don't think I can make it on my own. And I had like a little impression come into my mind where I could see myself holding hands with a man and and we had a long line of children with us. And that shocked me because I wasn't looking to get married. But but that's what I saw. And very soon after, we moved again. And we moved to an area near the beach in San Diego. And the church was right across the street from my house. And they held (laughs) seminary in that church building right across the street from my house. So I could get up in the morning at six o'clock, throw up my clothes on, put my hair in a ponytail and run over to the church and still make it to seminary at 6.30. It was a wonderful group. I think there were like four people who joined the church in that seminary class of about maybe 18 kids in that, that year. It was very dynamic and it was wonderful seminary class. I went every time, yeah, every day of my senior year. Then I got my patriarchal blessing and it pointed me, I think, more more um directly than anybody else's patriarchal blessing that i've ever talked to that it told me i needed to make a complete learning of the science learning and study of the science of the humanities and i I puzzled over that phrase for a long time so that i could help people who were confused and had lost their way using the gifts of the spirit that i would have and boy did that strengthen my desire to go to college and uh, i thought that probably meant that i should be a counselor so, so we moved, there's this church building, now I can go. And one day when I was there, I met my future husband. He was in the Navy and he was attending that church building. And actually I met him before we moved into that house. We just happened to go down there. My stepmom wanted to look around after church and find a house to live in. And um, he just happened to be visiting that day. The bishop's wife had taken him from the Navy base To go to church in the, you know how they had Sunday school and stuff in the morning and sacrament in the afternoon or vice versa, I forget. And then she would take them over to their house for lunch. Well, after the morning services, we went to their house for lunch also, so that I could meet the bishop and the bishop's daughter, who was my age. And there he was again, this cute sailor. (laughs) I tried not to look at him, but you know, didn't work. (laughs) So we had we had lunch at the bishop's house the day we met. And speaking of the bishop. He was a wonderful bishop who really cared about me. And he cared about when, when I started dating my husband, everybody cautioned me not to, not to get involved with him. He was in the Navy. He was older. You need more time. You need to go away. You need to go to BYU for a year before you do anything else. And our bishop was supportive of us in our relationship. We really wanted to be together and we wanted to get married. And um, so, yeah, that, all that happened.
0: And then you guys, you get married right before you're 18. You get married at 17. Right.
1: Right. I was 17, but I had just, just, I was like three days before graduation because I wanted to happen, wanted to be married on June the 8th. And so I was 17 turning 18 in October. Um, So we wanted to do that because we wanted to have three months to live together in a little apartment by the beach as a married couple. And so we did. And then at the end of that, we through everything we owned in the world in the back of our beat up BW bus that we owned, And we drove to Salt Lake. My husband's Navy assignment was to go to school at the University of Utah. And he was in a program that was going to make him a military officer when he got his degree, because he had two years of college already. And this gave him the opportunity to finish and um, get his degree and still be in the Navy. So that's what we were going to do. And so many stories are popping into my head. What do you want to know?
0: <laughs> well, you, after you get married, you and Mike moved to Salt Lake and he's yes. becoming an officer. Um, mm-hmm. You get I was go to.
1: Yeah, I did. I was going to school too. I was an art major. I had a, I had a scholarship, but I got pregnant and I was sick, sick, sick. I felt terrible every day. Um, I went to the doctor frequently to see why I was so sick, and when I was about six months along, he listened for the heartbeat. They didn't have ultrasounds then, and um, there was no heartbeat, so he decided that, you know, this was not a viable pregnancy, so I had a DNC, and that pregnancy was over. I was sad, but I, they told me to go home. It was Christmas time. Just rest, and soon you'll be feeling better, but... I didn't. I kept coughing and coughing and I felt worse. And thankfully, the doctor who had been my doctor um, for the pregnancy was a family practice doctor. And he made the connection between the miscarriage and my coughing. And he realized that I had a form of cancer called choriocarcinoma. It's rather rare, but it had it starts in the placenta. And it affects the baby first and the fetus. And most of the time when people have this, they just have a miscarriage and they don't even know that's what happened. And it happens early enough for them. But for me, I stayed pregnant such a long time that it filtered through my blood system until I had cancer all through my lungs. So I basically had lung cancer. And they came in to tell me what it was. And they said, there's good news and there's bad. They said, the kind of cancer you have, is, is very treatable. We have good medicine for it. But the bad news is that your cancer is so very advanced that we just don't know if we'll be able to get it you know, in time, but we will, we will try. So at that point, I got a blessing. I had the blessing, priesthood blessing that said clearly, you will get well. And I believed it 100%. In fact, I was impatient to get out of the ICU because I had lots of oxygen. I remember, I think I was the only person in the ICU who asked for a TV because <laughs> I was bored and wanted to get out of there. And, um, but after I thought it was funny, 40 days and 40 nights of being in the hospital, I went home. I had lost so much weight though. I think I weighed 128 pounds, which for me at 5'8 was way thin. My husband carried me up the stairs to our second story apartment.
0: And you were um, you were only 19 years old at the time? Um, not even. I was still 18. So still 18. We had, we,
1: we, this was December. We got married in June. This was December. You know, I was 18. Um, so they started the chemotherapy. And back in the day, they didn't have the IV ports like they do yes. now. Yeah. So they had to start a new IV every time. And pretty, it, that was, I don't have good veins to begin with. And that was just like torture because they couldn't get it in. And oh my goodness. So what they did was they had that a- IV Monday through Friday, you know, of a week. And then two weeks would go by from and I'd have to recover. And by this the third week, I was, you know, I was feeling good again. My hair didn't fall out. I looked like a normal 18-year-old. And I, last thing I wanted to do was go have more of those IVs, which made me feel sick and made me have ulcers in my mouth and I couldn't eat. Hardly anyway, anyway. So that's how it went for a long time, and there were many days when I just wanted to to quit and give up. But my sweet husband came and like held my hand and helped me, and, and you know, at one point I almost socked a doctor because <laughs> he wasn't treating me well. And uh, he because see, the university didn't care if he missed classes as long as he was getting good grades. Right? They don't take attendance. But the Navy took attendance. They didn't like it when my husband missed any classes. So, uh, anyway, by the following summer, um, my sister came to live with us. It was really, really bad for her at home with my dad and stepmom. She came to live with us. She came for the summer at first, and she did so much better. That, that we asked if we could just keep her for the school year. We lived right there in Salt Lake and the school was just a block away. She had friends and you know we could take good care of her and I loved her and, and she cheered me up having her around. So my father said, okay. So she stayed with us throughout her fourth, after fifth grade and then sixth grade. And unfortunately, twice during that time, she fell and broke her arm. And both times in order to get her medical care, We took her to the hospital, but then we had to try to contact my father. And like, this is in the days before cell phones. So he was like all on the golf course or who knows where. And she'd be up there moaning. Oh, and we couldn't get her arm fixed until we got a hold of my doctor, my father to give permission. So we knew that had to change. We had to have something so we could get her medical care. We thought it would just be guardianship, but then the Navy told us, nope, if you want to get Navy benefits for her and you want her when you eventually move and leave the university and go to your duty station, you want her to come along as a member of the family, she has to be a full adoption, I'm like, whoa, okay. So we asked my father and we, we convinced him that that would be okay. Then we found out that we were in Utah, the state of Utah, you have to be at least 10 years older To adopt a family member and I couldn't because I'm only eight years older than she is but thankfully my husband is five years older than me so he is 13 years older than my sister so he legally adopted my sister so we have lots of jokes about that like that's how she became her own aunt
0: (laughs) you adopted her (laughs) Uh
1: yeah uh-huh 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 but, you know, I still think of her as my sister, you know. So she pretty she much
0: just stayed with you for the rest of her, her life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As she so went off to college. Yep. And your dad, he was okay with that. Yep. He was okay with that. Wow. Yeah.
1: I don't want to malign my dad. I was thinking about how to do this interview without doing that. But he, he's, I don't know, Just it's become a buzzword these days to talk about narcissism, but he was very focused on just himself. And I was so angry at him so much of the time during my teenage years, you know, and the way I was able to get out of that anger was to do what I do with clients now and try to see him from a compassionate point of view. Like, you? Yeah. Cause if he's, if he's so full, he really could not, see how things would be from another person's point of view. Like the way he treated me um, he, when he told me that my mother had cancer throughout her, he, wasn't, he never stopped as most parents would do to think, how can I say this to my daughter? He just, he couldn't even put himself in my shoes to think how it would look to me. He just could not do that. And he, you know, he could not have that kind of empathy like most of us try to do. And so to to think how limited his life is because he can't do that helped me have a little bit more compassion for him to stop and to just understand that that's just the way he is and to stop wishing he would be different because he's he is the way he is. And to just kind of let go of that fact that I didn't get to have a dad like I might have wanted to have a dad, but he was doing the best that he could. And so anyway, that's that's how it was.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, you and Mike, you, um, you have to have a hysterectomy when you're 19.
1: Yep. I, yep. They, after all that chemo and searching around it, this particular kind of cancer sends, sends out human, human chorionic gonadotropin, a kind of chemical, the same one that they test even now to, in a pregnancy test. And if there's a high amount of it, more than the usual amount, they know that this kind of cancer is still in your body. So that was another blessing of having this particular kind of cancer. You didn't have to wait till it showed up somewhere. They could just measure this. They could measure it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they could see. So mine went down, but it didn't go down far enough. It was still detectable. So they kept searching, thinking there must be some node of it somewhere in, in in her somewhere. So I had exploratory surgery on my abdomen. I had lung surgery to see if it had was still in my lungs. And eventually, they they and they did a DNC like four times to see if it was you know something they could scrape out of the lining in my uterus. And none of those things did anything. Plus, the chemo it didn't do anything. It still stayed at this. Too high, low, but too high to be normal level. So they decided the only thing they could do was to do a hysterectomy. So that's what they did. And when I was nineteen, so that you know, really, I was thinking that was probably one of the hardest uh, challenges of my life was not being able to have children born to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now you and Mike adopted. I mean, you, mm-hmm. I, I kind of wrote down a list. Mhm. You a son in 1976, a right. daughter from Korea, she was 15 years old. Yep. So how did you become connected with all did you go through an agency? Did you yeah. have a friend who knew a friend or how did no. it work with all these adoptions?
1: Okay, at the time um Church Family Services was, yeah. was placing babies with infertile couples. And so we were one of those infertile couples. So after waiting five years after my treatments were done, um, we we well they kind of let us do the waiting time concurrently with this with the waiting for a baby time. So we completed all the forms and paperwork and we adopted our first baby boy through the church while we were still living in Hawaii, the next the place we got transferred to or stationed, and um, and so yeah, so they, uh, they also. Were looking at the church family services at that time was looking for homes for these older girls and uh i had always thought i would love to have a child from korea or some other place and uh, and so we thought well she could come over and share the room with my sister and they could help each other and you know my sister was doing really well and we weren't we weren't well off, but we could do it you know so we applied and they said yes so we got our Korean daughter from the church family services, also.
0: And then you have another daughter, and in in mm-hmm. eighty, and she is right. deaf. You did, not yeah, yeah. She was deaf.
1: No, right. We so the church policy at that time, family services would place two newborns with uh, an infertile couple, and then after that, sometimes they could adopt um, special needs and older children also through the church. So we applied again for a baby and they said, wait, you already have two. We said, well, yes, but she's older and special needs. So, you know, can we still apply for a baby? And so we applied and we waited a really long time. We were about ready to give up when we got her. And she was only three days old. She had this beautiful red hair. And we were just in love with her from the moment we got her. Kind of chubby little round face and so, so cute. And at some point she was, so then, so then we had my sister and we had our son who was at that point like two, four, he was four and then our baby. And so, and then the next two we adopted were from the state of Oregon who were siblings. Um, They're biracial black, white kids, adorable, beautiful children. Uh, and they were in foster care and they hoped to be legally freed for adoption and to get them out of foster care and get them more quickly into a permanent home, you could do a foster adopt placement. So we did that and they came to us uh, in 1983. So everything was happening rather quickly. So we and the two older girls had gone to college and, and they were in that zone where they were in college and sometimes home and back to college and so forth. But then we had the four younger kids um, who were within five years of the same age that we were raising, and my, as far as the youngest one being deaf, we noticed that she didn't. She didn't talk. She kind of followed along, did everything that other kids would do, but she she didn't talk. We tried to get her to talk, and we did a little homemade hearing tests with her. And sometimes she would react, like when we called her name, and sometimes we'd make a loud sound and she would turn, and sometimes she didn't. So, thankfully, a friend of mine gave some really good advice that I try to pass on. That if ever a parent thinks that their child might have a hearing loss, don't ask your pediatrician, your family doctor, because they're in the habit of just saying, "There, there, mom, it's okay. She'll turn, she'll learn to talk eventually. It'll be fine." And valuable time will be lost. Instead, it's better to go to a place that that teaches that. Excuse me, that um. Um, test infants and young children their hearing they know just how to do it and they can tell if your baby or your child has any degree of hearing loss and then they can help you to start working with them so that they can use what hearing that they do have to learn to talk if they can to learn sign language and all the things that you want to do to help your child not get behind in his or her development so yeah don't go to the family doctor go to someone we went to the Oregon Center for Hearing and Speech um, up up on the hill and uh, at OHSU. OHS at OHSU, yes, couldn't think of the name. That's yeah. it. But that's where we went at Oregon Health Science University. And they tested her. They had this cute little monkey with with cymbals that would clap. And uh, they would make a sound. They, you know, trained her that when she heard the sound, she should put do something and then the monkey would clap and Anyway, they tested her several times until they figure out at that point she had a moderate hearing loss, but over the years that had declined till she's profoundly deaf at this point. Um, but she's awesome. You would love her. She's a beautiful young woman and she can speak and sign fluently in ASL. She's going to college. Um, she kind of took a detour from college and then she's now back in college. She wants to be a nurse. She's uh, going to graduate with her associate degree in May. And then she's going to go on and there in Texas where she lives now. So yeah, Lynette, what
0: did adoption teach you personally? What Ooh. having all these beautiful children come into your life from mm-hmm. all different walks of life with different challenges, but also what did it, what, what did it teach you?
1: Wow. That's a good question. I learned a lot of things. At first I did learn that love is not enough to fix all problems. As much as you love them and try to teach them the, the best you know how, sometimes they have problems that you don't know what to do with and that they don't they can't that aren't just, you know, fixable like that. You don't just bring them home and give them love and everything will be fine. So they bring bring a lot of problems with them. And those you have to accept and work with and try to love them and help them through the best you can. Um, I also learned that it's, I I don't know if it was just the times that I lived in or what, but uh, as a young woman in the church, I was kind of got the impression and I've talked to other people who have too, that if you just, you know, if you just live the gospel and if you have family home evening and read your scriptures and you do all the things, then your family's going to turn out Perfectly, you know, and if your family doesn't turn out perfectly, then it's really easy to start blaming yourself and thinking, I must have done something wrong. And I have learned that that is not necessarily the case. You know, you can do the best you can. We did the best we could, we did not do perfectly. There were times when I lost my temper, you know, there were times that were really tough when they had behaviors and I had no idea what to do about them, and neither did the professionals. That was the thing. That kind of got me on this therapy path because they didn't know how to help kids with attachment problems either. Children that had been abandoned and badly neglected, and as a result, had a hard time trusting and building relationships with you, and you know, becoming a really loved and engaged member of the family. They didn't know what to do to help them. Some of the professionals even said, "Oh, this child is too hard. You should, you know." not keep them and we're like no because what would happen if we don't keep them where, where will they go who's going to right. take care of them right who I And mean, we were not perfect but we were thought well at least they have family at least they're with their sibling no we're we're not going to do that so it was it was really hard but it kind of helped and being toward being a in addition to my patriarchal blessing the desire to learn to understand what was going on here and to try to help that also was part of it um there were there were more things to to um i don't know i've kind of lost my train of thought on that but yeah i wanted i wanted to help others and i wanted to add to the knowledge base of you know how to help
0: so you through the years you you worked to get your license You Mm -hmm. get, you get your master's degree, you become a Mm -hmm. licensed clinical social worker, a mental health therapist, right? What, what in this, what is it about this career? What is it about therapy that just ignites your soul to engage in other people's stories and help them in their life with their struggles?
1: There's something special that happens when, first of all, it's really, it's really an honor and a privilege to engage with other people and hear their stories, to have them open up their lives to you and to share them. And I think something kind of wonderful happens, something feels magical and spiritual happens if you can find that connection with, and most of the time you can, with the person that you're speaking with. And they share with you what's happening in their lives. And very much, if that relationship is one of the most important parts of why therapy works, Is if the relationship between the therapist and the client is, is good and true, and you can help them in, by creating that relationship. And then the interventions that you use can also help them when they're stuck in their lives in certain ways. And it is so wonderful to see people that are doing better i've had people say you know how can you do that all day listening to people complain to you about all the problems that they're having in their lives it doesn't make you depressed and i I will say no no because they get better i see them improve i and i feel like i had a part in that and that feels
0: very rewarding yeah yeah so you and mike you decide you're, you're working and you decide he retires and you Mm -hmm. make a decision that you're going to go serve a mission. So can you talk a little bit about going out there? Well, you went to the Philippines, it was right before COVID and Mm -hmm. you were able to, I wrote down, you would You had 747 sessions with 251 missionaries from from August, yeah, yeah. from August 2019 to March 2020.
1: Right. So, So the first seven months before the COVID pandemic.
0: Yeah. What was it like when you found out you were going to go to the Philippines and what were some of the responsibilities they shared with you that they were, that you were going to do? And did you even have a understanding? Of the things that these missionaries were going through? Ooh, um, well, there was someone
1: already doing this calling of area mental health advisor, which basically what he told me was you're the counselor that the mission leaders send their missionaries to talk to when they have counseling needs that are beyond the abilities of the mission leaders to deal with. And so you. At that point, there was just one person serving in their calling. So he, and then later me, I got um, referrals from all the 23 missions in all of the Philippines. And and that, that he talked to me and tried to share with me what they did. We talked by phone. And I had one day of overlap when he was there and I was there. And I was still jet lagged. And he tried to teach me what what I would do in my calling, but basically it was just a jump in and learn as you go kind of experience. Um, it was quite interesting. At first, all we had were phone, phones. We only, I could, there were a few missionaries, the ones who were in the MTC who could come and see me in person because my office was in the MTC in the Philippines. And did you know they had an MTC in the Philippines? But they do. And yeah, uh, yeah and it was, It was nice to meet them in person and then the others who were out in the mission field and all these other missions i just talked to them on the telephone i'd never even seen them and i had to get used to their accents and and there were times when i could not understand them and i had to call a third person in to act as an interpreter on our calls and gradually um that's another story in itself um how the so the missionaries got to have more than just flip phones. They got to have the internet and they had cell phones, you know, like iPhones in order to communicate. And then I could see their faces and we could do video calls. But um, did I really know what I was getting into? Not really. But I I had heard about this, uh, this calling as an area mental health advisor years before when I was first starting my career and thought it would be awesome one day to do that as a mission. So I was very excited to do it. I didn't know hardly anything about the Philippines. The person I replaced said, it's like Hawaii with an Asian flair. <laughs> 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 I mean, he knew I loved Hawaii, so so
0: <laughs> yeah. So you're like, okay, but you know what? I, I also but, forgot, you got you had a diagnosis of cancer again.
1: Right, I sure did. Um, so it actually happened, um, a couple times, uh, yeah. three times altogether. together. So back when my kids were still small in 1989, uh, I had a thyroid lump, a lump showed up on my throat here and I had thyroid cancer. It was relatively simple compared to the other. I just had surgery and then I had radiation. Now I have to take a pill every day of my life, but that's it. It was relatively simple. Um, Except at that time, they had a practice of for six weeks, you could have no thyroid replacement hormone. So you went through a period of time where I really experienced what it was like to be depressed. And it was not fun at all. I, and so now they don't do that, thankfully. But that was the treatment at the time. And then, yes, um, when I was working at Infermedino at Kaiser Permanente as a full-time therapist, um, in about 2014, I discovered I had a lump in my breast. And so they did all the testing and discovered that, yes, it was it was cancerous and it had spread to my lymph nodes. So I had a mastectomy and then I had radiation and then I had chemotherapy. And most of the time I was actually able to keep on working. Uh, a friend of mine, here's another little tip, If you know someone who's going through chemotherapy and is going to lose their hair, tell them what they told me. I had this wonderful black friend who said, Girl, I'm gonna fix you up. And so she took me to the wig store and she said, Here's what you do before you lose your hair, you get a new, you get a a wig that's a little different than the one you had. Like you cut your hair, you change the color, something new style. And then you wear that to work or whatever. You start wearing that and everybody will say, oh, you changed your hair. I really like it. And then when everyone's used to that, you're losing your hair and they don't even know. And so that worked for me at work with my clients. They didn't know that I was going through that, nor that I was wearing a wig. And most of the time I was able to keep working, not all the time. I did during the radiation, I really did. But, you know, it was a real wake-up call to have that experience because... Cancer diagnosis reminds you that you know we, life is limited. You never know how long you have. And if I had thought that I was going to uh, work about three more years until I was older, yeah, three more years than I was going to, there were some financial benefits of doing it that way. But my husband was already retired, and he said. And when when five years had gone by, it was getting to be twenty nineteen, and five years since twenty fourteen when I had the cancer. You know he was able to start thinking about going on a mission he encouraged me to do it I really did not have that in my mind but he I kind of went with his idea he sat down in front of this very same screen I'm looking at you now through and and looked at all the missionary opportunities and started going oh we could go here and oh we could go there and oh it'd be so fun and then I saw the one that professional you know for professionals in, in the various places including mental health providers and then it all just kind of clicked and felt like it was right. So we put in our little said, kind of like our dream sheet where we like to go. And they called us not long afterwards and said, you know, all these places that you wanted to go, um, they're already filled. And we were very disappointed. And, but they said, but we have places over here in, in the Philippines. And the person that we had in mind to come now can't come. So we need someone. We need someone really soon, like August. And this was like May. And we were like, ah, because I hadn't even retired and there was a million things to do. But somehow I retired on July 1st and we left on July, May, August 18th to go to the Philippines. And it was one of the best things we ever did. And I would encourage anyone to go on a senior mission. You really won't be sorry, Beth. It's, it's so awesome. It's so awesome. And... Uh, yeah i would encourage anybody and and now what's really cool is that if even if you have some physical limitations or one spouse doesn't want to go but the other one does want to serve a mission you can serve from home there's a lot of virtual opportunities to to participate in the lord's work full time as a senior missionary even if you can't leave home but if you can leave home it's really awesome because you have an experience like you'll you'll never forget
0: can you share without, um, you know, here you are meeting with 251 missionaries. What are yeah. some of the things that you are seeing that they were struggling with? What were some of the, um, life struggles? Was yeah. it mostly anxiety and depression in general? Yes.
1: Um, but there were also just, you know, one thing I really learned is that people are people, the world around. And the same diagnoses that can pop up in California or anywhere can can happen in the Philippines or anywhere. And so yes, a lot of them were having um anxiety, depression, problems related to their youth, their family background. Uh, they didn't handle handle their stress of being a missionary and their self esteem. You know, when they, they would blame themselves, they said, "I'm going to set a goal to have this many baptisms by that date." And even though the Philippines is growing very well and there are many baptisms, if that person couldn't manage to get baptisms of that level by a certain time, then they didn't feel like they were doing well enough. They were very hard on themselves, so there was anxiety and perfectionism and all the usual things that tend to happen to missionaries. But we also saw some really challenging situations come up Um, like for instance we had one missionary sister from another country serving in the Philippines who had a um, conversion disorder that it appeared that she'd had a stroke that half of her body was paralyzed and and but when they examined her, her her brain you know with testing there was no indication of it having been a stroke it was it was it was psychogenic it was caused by her psychiatric problems so she was given medication and support and in a few but it took a few weeks to figure out what was going on and she gradually got better but after she got fairly well you know the decision was made to take her back to her home country which was tonga but she had to be accompanied so one of the things we did during that first seven months of the mission was accompany missionaries home who needed to go home in situations like that. So they asked for volunteers who want to go to Tonga. I stuck my hand up and my husband and I went to Tonga. It was very far, even from the Philippines. But once we got there, we had a wonderful experience for a few days because they only have flights in on a Thursday and flights back out on a Monday. So from Thursday to Monday we got to stay there and um we it's a long story but we got that experience of seeing what her home country was like. Uh, we took a sister home to Sri Lanka as well. And uh, we, we took um, someone back to Salt Lake. Uh, and that was nice because we got to visit with my sister and her family who live in that Salt Lake area. And that was in January of 2020. So it was right before the pandemic. We had a little visits home. Anyway, back to what, they, what kind of things they deal with. Uh, there were children, young people with bipolar disorder, um, we had one young man had a very obvious manic episode, and he had that during the time when the missionaries were completely locked down in the small areas where they, they lived. Now, that's one thing people don't realize, that the experience of the pandemic in the U.S. and the experience of the pandemic in the Philippines, way different. Things were way more locked down in the Philippines. And in many ways, they still are comparatively still in the pandemic over there. Because they also wear masks and things, but at that time you could not even leave your barangay, which is like your little neighborhood, a parish, and so not there was no way we could send him home, which was the policy if someone has bipolar disorder. So we had to treat him in the field, and the cool thing was that because he couldn't go home and he got better, he he got to serve for six months while his bipolar disorder was under control with medication. So when he did go home. He went home doing fine and having learned that with medication he can manage this condition and have a good life. Um, oh, Lynette, wow, do just, they yeah. do
0: they know like? That's one thing that I've always wondered. Is there's because yeah. my mother in law served as the mission nurse for several years in Eugene, Oregon, uh-huh. and um, there were many elders and sisters that were in need of help. And I know that before you go on a mission, you fill out the paperwork. So what right. is it that happens that, it, I mean, is it's the stress, I'm sure, the new environment, the new people in their lives, but it exacerbates some of these anxiety, depression. So how do you figure out, like, knowing beforehand they go, that there's some of these struggles, but then getting out there? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, sometimes you don't know beforehand, because as you say, it might be a minor problem at home, but then get to be a much bigger problem because of the stress of leaving home for the first time, going to a foreign country, learning a new language, living with people that you don't choose, putting yourself out there and teaching the gospel. And especially if you're teaching it in a brand new language, this is all very challenging. And so that stress level, what's a minor problem and manageable at home isn't always manageable like anxiety. when they're in the field, another thing is that a lot of mental health disorders pop up normally in the, that particular age group in the early twenties. It, it's a challenging time of life for everybody. I mean, even people who don't leave home to go on missions—that's often a time when those those kinds of problems pop up, particularly bipolar disorder.
0: Yeah. Would you be willing to share one of the stories you sent me about the Filipino elder who yeah. was struggling?
1: Yeah, I would love to share that story. I actually did write it out. So uh, forgive me if I read it. I hopefully have it here. Uh, here it is. So here's, this is what I wrote when I wrote, wrote it, this story. Oh my goodness, I touched it. Screen changed. Okay. So this is a story from the pre-COVID earlier part of my mission when we still were traveling. I had gotten a scary referral. A Filipino elder had gotten a rope, as he called it, and his companion had stopped him from using it to end his life. So you can picture that. His companion stops him as he's trying to hang himself. So that was a scary referral. The companion called the mission president, who called me. I'd been trying to reach this elder. But I tried again from the airport in Palawan, anticipating I'd have about an hour waiting at the gate. I called him from the busy, noisy airport, and I reached him finally. So with my earphone in my ear, jammed in my ear, because so it was so noisy, straining to hear, He poured out his sad life story. Here it is in quotes. When I was grade two, age seven, my parents separated. Both mother and father had other families and went to them. My siblings found someone to feed them and I was left alone at the house. He's seven. My father every every time will come. He is drunk and beats me. My body is bleeding. I gathered cans and plastic to sell to buy food for me and begging for food and money. I lived under the bridge, age eight to nine, with other boys, not 11 and nine. When I have a bad day or argument with my companion now, it reminds me of the past and I feel I'm a failure. Last week, I found a rope and I wanted to kill myself. I can't take it anymore. My companion stopped me. I told my companion, don't leave me, end of quotes. While he was telling me all these things, announcements came over the PA system in the airport, and Elder McDonald and his associates were donning their backpacks and rolling their suitcases and getting in line to get on the plane. I knew I needed to end the call, but how? I took a breath, and I prayed a flash prayer, and it came to me to say, Elder, look how far you have come from under that bridge and bleeding to wearing a white shirt and a tie and representing Jesus Christ and teaching others how to have a better life. You are not a failure. You are a success. As these words came out of my mouth, I knew they were true. It was one of those times where you didn't think the words, they just came pouring out of your mouth. I assured him that the Lord helped him in the past and the Lord would continue to help him. And as I ended the call, I got on board the plane and in my seat before putting the phone into airplane mode. I sent him a text. Remember, you are a success, a survivor. You have come so far. You will get through this. You are not alone. Later, when I reached out to him to schedule a follow up, he texted me, I will never forget what you said to me. In I also know and hope to never forget that the Lord is right there and will give us the help we need in the moment that we need it. And that was one of the main things I learned in my life, Beth, is that we always get the help we need in the moment that we need it. We don't need to fear. We don't get that help in advance of the thing that we're worried about, but in the very moment that we need it, we get the help we need. Can I share an experience that's kind of out of order from what we were talking about? Yeah, totally. Okay. so back back before the mission, my husband and I like to scuba dive. And we went on a scuba diving vacation to the island of Bonaire, which is in the Caribbean over by uh, Venezuela. And they have protected their waters around that island for many years and it's a gorgeous place to go and scuba dive. And so we did that for a week. And on the last day before you fly home because of the change of pressure, it's not a good idea to dive. So we had one more day and we thought, what should we do? This is this cute little island. We've been underwater the whole time. We haven't looked at it. So how could we look at it? So we rented a little motor scooter and toured around the island. So it seemed like such a fun, romantic thing to do, right? Like you see on all the movies. And uh, so, so we were doing that. We were having a fine time. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. We're on the pavement. We've had a terrible accident. I was all broken up like comfy-dumpty. And that left arm of mine that got broken in in an accident when I was 26, got broken again. And I had broken my jaw and a lot of other bones. And while we're laying there on the ground, someone came up to me and talked to me and uh, asked me my name and told, told me his name was Jorge. And could I say that? And I said, Jorge. And he said, oh, you say that really good for an American. And I said, I'm from California. And then I was out again. <laughs> and, and so anyway, long story a little shorter, we, there was no hospital on that island. So we were flown in a little plane to the next bigger island, which is Curacao. And there's a hospital there in a 350-year-old building. And so uh, since I'm a Kaiser employee, they, wanted, they were trying to decide whether they would, I was in good enough shape to fly back to the States and get treated or if I should be treated right there and I'm laying on a gurney with an IV and I'm in and out of consciousness for a while. And then when I wake up, I'm laying there and I'm starting to think, what's gonna happen to me? And I get kind of scared. And all of a sudden, I tell you this is true, a voice comes into my mind saying the kind of things I would say in a therapy session. And this voice says to me, are you okay right now? Which is what I would say to my clients, when I was trying to tell them what I was just saying to you—that we always get the support we need in the moment that we need it—we asked them, "Are you okay right now?" My first thought in my head to answer back was, "Yeah, right. I'm not okay. Look at me. You know, I'm all broken up. I am at a horrible accident." And then this voice was very calm. I know, but are you okay right now? And I had to stop and think. Okay, that means this very moment. I'm not in terrible pain they are taking care of me I'm in a safe place nothing bad is happening to me so yeah I'm kind of okay right now and then the voice in my head says back to me then just breathe I'm here so I breathe and I probably fell asleep again I woke up later again they're working on my arm it's hurting I'm scared And I start getting these feelings of what is going to happen to me? I'm really scared. And the voice comes back and says the very same thing again. Are you okay right now? And this time I knew what to say. This time I knew that the answer was because they yes, they're helping me. It hurts a little, but they're actually helping me. And I'm in a safe place. Nothing bad has happened to me. I'm getting care. So yeah, I'm okay right now. then, then Then the answer again, then just breathe. I am here. And that really told me that God is really, really truly aware of us and our needs. And He is there. And He will always give you the help you need in the moment that you need it. So there's really no need to fear. It's just like the second and third verse of how Firm the Foundation, which is my go-to song, you know, that He's really going to be there. He was there with me when I worked with that missionary in the story that. I just told you, I had no idea what to say. The plane was taking off. I had to end the call. This kid was suicidal. What can I say? And the answers just came right out of my mouth. I think I know that he is with us and he will help us in the moment that we need it. We need not fear.
0: Yeah, and I think it's hard because I, I feel like in this world today, we want the answer or... yeah. We don't want to wait. Um, and so it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And some, and challenges
1: are hard. And when you're in them, when you're in the middle of them, you can't see the blessings that might come from it in the, in the future. Like there were many situations that happened in our lives. Uh, one of them that happened at the end of, of Mike's ter- time at the University of Utah that I don't think I got to tell was that... Um, you know, he was in six weeks before graduating, because he got called into the commanding officer's uh, office. And he said, you know, you've been missing so many classes. Why have you been missing these classes? And Mike said, well, I'm still, I'm still doing well in all my classes. And he was reminded by this Marine Lieutenant Commander who was in charge. Yes, but you know, it's a policy, you have to go to class. That's you're getting paid for it. That's what your job is, it's military. And he says, what is your reason for not going to the class? And he told him, I've been taking my wife to chemotherapy. She has cancer. She needs me to be there and help her. And so this man stops and he says, what's more important to you, your military career or your wife? And my husband says, well, my wife. And he says, well, then you're not cut out to be a military officer. And he dropped him from the program. And and that would have meant he was immediately shipped out and couldn't graduate except that, thank you, Lord, he had six weeks of leave on the books. And he reminded the Marine Lieutenant Commander that if it's a permanent change of duty station, he gets to take leave. So he took that leave. He got graduated with his degree in electrical engineering and computer science. that has helped him throughout his career and helped us to support our family. But that was one of those moments where it just felt like our whole dream and purpose was lost, you know? And but it wasn't because the Lord had a plan for us that moved us to Hawaii that gave me a chance to teach seminary there for five years and really be a part of the community. And the last year we were, and then still have military benefits because that cancer I had before the the choreo carcinoma, it came back. So I needed six more months of chemo, and the military paid for it. And, but he was stationed. He was at the port the last year he got to serve in the bishopric in a hawaiian ward so he got to have the wonderful experience of, of working in these with these polynesian saints and being a part of all that and you know it all works together but when you're in the middle of it you don't see it right Beth? you don't see it yeah you, you don't see it so you want it you want to know the answer you okay why is this happening this is so horrible like and so many times I've felt that but looking back you know, that's when it's passed, then you can look back and say, oh, and see what it was you were, what you learned from these experiences.
0: So you, I, if I go over your life, you, you have a mother that dies of cancer. You have a little sister that you end up raising, adopting mm-hmm. You're married at a young age. Mm-hmm. You've gone through cancer, three different kinds Thanks. of cancers. hmm mm-hmm. You have served as a mental health specialist and as a therapist and you do EMDR and cognitive behavior mm-hmm. therapy, and you have so much life experience, Lynette. And so mm-hmm. when you look back and, and you served you know, in the Philippines, mm-hmm. you've got so much life experience. When you look back, what do you hope that people see from your life?
1: Well, I, one of the things I learned, I, I hope that people see from from my life and maybe from their own too, is that, um, well, evidences of God's love. I used to wonder how people could get up in, in a church meeting and just say, I love you all so much. And I used to sit there thinking, really? You don't even really know me. And I was kind of skeptical that they could really love you that much, you know? And then then when I went on the mission and I had that experience of opening up my phone and there's this little face of this person that I never met before. And as soon as I see their face or even on the phone, it was just their voice. I had this big outpouring of love for that person. And what I really think it is, is that God gives us, a portion of the love that he feels for that person so that we can experience just how much he loves them. It's a gift that we're able to feel that, that kind of love. And, and I, so I do know it because I felt it in, with the people that I served on the mission. And even in my practice, now in my practice and in my former practice with Kaiser, which wasn't in a religious at all setting still, I would feel that kind of love. And I really hope people will get from my, love, my life story is that because he loves us so much, he places us on a path through our lifetime experiences. It's like he designs the perfect curriculum <laughs> as an yeah. educator to, to educate you in all the things that you need to learn. Yes. You know? But it's not necessarily things you want, but the things you need to learn. Sometimes I think I must be like the most stubborn and the most... <laughs> Because he had to like knock me around pretty hard and get two bad accidents and three times cancer and, in order to like get my attention and teach me a few things. But I really think that he designs the right curriculum to educate you, the things that you need to learn and, the, the op- and gives you an opportunity to grow, to become your best self and to become more Christ-like and to learn to turn to Heavenly Father for help. Boy, that's a big one for me and when life is difficult and full of challenges and nothing has gone wrong that's just part of the divine curriculum and he's going to help you through it if we trust him you know like yeah. when peter walked on the water you know he just stepped out on the water christ said come and he came and he, as soon as he got distracted and started looking around he started sinking and he was you know falling because he's not putting his trust in god anymore but when he turned back to christ boom he was supported and got the help that he needed i really think that's true we just we all need to do that
0: no No, i I like that i like that that this is it's our curriculum
1: yeah yeah and nothing has gone wrong sometimes we think oh no this is terrible this thing that happened yeah somebody died or somebody's got cancer or somebody broke that my my sister just recently she broke her arm again and had to have surgery to put it back together she slipped on the ice up there in utah and, uh, and, and, I'm like, oh no, but then you think, okay, this is just part of the plan for her. know, it's going to have some blessings in it somewhere. And usually we don't see them though. Until after, after, after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. After the fact. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, my last question that I want to ask you is, um, with my podcast being seeking light, mm-hmm. how do you personally seek light Lynette? I try to remember to turn to my
1: Heavenly Father in prayer. I like to go outdoors sometimes and just look at this beautiful world, a little corner of it, wherever I am. And that helps me to feel closer to Him. And then just pray and ask, pour my heart out and ask. It also works well when I keep a journal, but I don't always do that. But that that is how I seek light, and uh, I recommend it. I really do. And you can even do those little flash prayers like I did in that story I told you where you just help kind of like, and you, you do get answers. He is there and he is mindful of each of us all the time. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to blows your mind to think of that, you know, but he's not limited by time like we are. So he can, he can have enough time to be with you and be with me and with the elders all of them, all our ancestors, missionaries, and everybody in this whole world. And that's just like, it's mind blowing, but it's the way it is. And he loves you. And he's
0: there. Lynette, thank you so much for doing this interview.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was a a learning experience and part of my curriculum, I think. (laughs) 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 Kind of going back over all these things and, thinking about them and writing it up and sharing it
0: I hope it's useful to someone it will be thank you I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast please share these episodes with your family and friends I look forward to being with you again soon have a great day